So welcome everybody to MMA and to our conversation with uh, Alexander Bard, which will be uh, also on our various podcast network, Sweeney versus Bard. We've had hundreds of hours of conversations, which you can check out, of course, and some of you are here because of those conversations. Alexander is the most dangerous man in Sweden at the moment. I think he's wanted. Um, he's he's uh, he's uh, he's the smartest philosopher I've ever met, and he's uh, he's a really incredibly generous dude. And he just he seems to be uh, you know just creating this entire culture, in fact, um, or helping create an, an entire culture. So uh, he's you know my favorite guy in the world. So so anyway, I'm just going to leave this to Alexander. He's going to talk about media. Um, the title of the talk is An Odyssey Towards Digital Shamanism. Is that, is that correct, Alexander? Yes. All right. Um, so, so I'm going to leave it to Alexander for about 45 minutes. And then we're going to have a lively Q&A. Me and Owen will ask a couple questions. And then we're going to open it up uh, to uh, the second half, which is the, uh, you know, the, hot, the um, cool media aspect of our, of our show, um, of our class, of whatever this is. Um, so anyway, without further ado, uh, Alexander, uh, take us on a hot media journey. I'll start with the word media. Um, media is plural, singular, medium. So let's first look into what a medium is. Um, a medium is uh, a person who's a go-between, between different spheres. And uh, the way... The original sociant. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure Owen can fill in the words here. Some of the words that you might not be familiar with. But a sociant is the name for the original nomadic tribe. There's even a, a modern data science called um, sociontology, which is part of modern data anthropology. We can actually, throughout data from history and from contemporary society, we can then test different theses on on how actually human beings do operate within a society. And and the sociant turns out to be something we lived in for some 70 to 80,000 years at least, uh, probably mostly in Africa, but eventually around the globe. And, and during this period, very little changed in human society. So we were evolutionary shaped during this period. So when we talk about human beings as being different from apes, for example, a lot of the characteristics that are human were actually shaped during this sociontic period. Uh, and the sociont here is a mix of social, for human interaction and ontology for, for, for being. So, so in the sense that we can formulate today a being of what it means to be human, we call this socio-ontology. So I will refer to the socio-ontology. And the way this socio-ontology was structured, and you will, you will probably hear map it pretty quickly because this is actually how we structure our lives today as well. At least we try to, unless politicians and ideologues and other people try to force us not to, but the way we naturally structure society and relationship between human beings is that we first of all create an inner circuit, which is totally dominated by women. It's also called the matriarchy. It's usually led by the oldest woman of the tribe, who happens to be tyrant, by the way. Women do not have a problem with dictatorships at all. It's men who have a problem with dictatorships, not women. But, but it's just the older woman is usually in control of the inner circuit. And, and outside the inner circuit is the outer circuit, which is, of course, the realm of the vast majority of men. At least straight women and straight men are located in these two spheres. And in between the two spheres, there's a, there's a membrane. This is what we call this membranics. There's a membrane 
of androgynous people. The androgynous people are usually the ones we call gays, and lesbians, and trans people in a given society. Some of the gay guys are even part of the inner circuit. Some of the lesbian women are a part of the outer circuit. If you go to see a hairdresser with five women gossiping, it's usually a gay guy fixing their hair. If you go out shooting, hunting in northern Scandinavia, the woman who comes along with the biggest gun is probably the lesbian of the village. So, so you find these characters, but they're membranic, meaning that they're go-betweens. And the reason for this is that Number one, men and women do want to be sexually attracted to one another. And the way to be sexually attracted is to find something totally alien and mystical about the other gender. And the way we pursue that is that women and men actually pressure each other away from each other as much as impossible to increase sexual attraction in between. And this forces us eventually as humans and we're a flock animal to develop more of these androgynous traits among approximately 4% of the population. So these, this is what we call the androgynous caste in, in our philosophy. And the androgynous caste are always about four population of any given population anywhere in the world, which means this was actually shaped during the Salcyon. It's not something that developed in China or America or in Greenland. It developed during the Salcyon. And, and that's why we can claim that we have these people around. They're go-betweens, right? They're mediums. Gay guys so lesbians are mediums between men and women. That's what we need them. And that's where they're a small minority but they're still incredibly important to keep a society together. And then if you go outside the outer circuit where say 92% of men are located, then you find uh, what's called the shamanoid, the shamanoid people or the shamanic caste. I've written a lot about this with John Söderqvist in our work. So the, in the tribal map, the shamans are actually outside the tribe, but still belong to the tribe. Here's again one when many of the contradictions that actually are very productive. So a shaman is somebody who walks out of the tribe, but it's still part of the tribe. So you have to go outside the tribe to see the shaman, even if the shaman is a member of the tribe. Now, why are there shamanoid people? Another 4% of the population. The shamanoid androgynous caste in total are about 8% of the population. That's how you find this characteristic. 92% of men and 92% of women happen to be perfectly straight. Right? So the shamanoid have a sexual characteristics like they don't even care what they fuck. <laughs> Get used to it. Like they don't know what sexual orientation is. If it breeds and, 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 and has a pulse, it's probably something to play around with because the shamanoid are incredible risk takers. They often die young. Uh, say you think of a rock star, for example, that's often very much a shamanoid personality. And the shamans are the real mediums of the tribe. Why? because the shamans are the only ones who can contact other tribes without being killed. All the connections between tribes are, are, are constant warfare. There's nothing but constant warfare between tribes with the exception of shamans. I've seen this literally myself, for example, in New Guinea, that the guys shape their swords and things and they go to war and they actually literally kill each other in the afternoon. But there's these guys with these weird kind of costumes or signals uh, they just walk straight through. They walk straight through the battlefield, and nobody would ever throw anything at them, right? Because they're the go-betweens. They're the hotline between the tribes. So in case the war is over or it's declared over, it's a shame to declare it over because they're the ones who walk in between. Say you got a football field, you you got a referee. The referee acts the same role. The referee is both part of the team but also outside the team, and that's exactly how shamans operate. So shamans are mediums, and this is very crucial here. That the shamanoid characteristics are very uncommon, very rare, but serve a very important purpose. All outside communication from the Sassiant are handled by shamans. 
That includes both horizontal outside communication, which is the name when you talk to strangers from other tribes, usually shamans representing other tribes, for example. And this is also the case when it comes to vertical communication with the outside world, which is talking to the gods or the demons. So the gods up above or the demons below, basically. So the guys who talk to the gods and the strangers and the demons are the shamans. You cannot do that. That is impossible for you. You will get killed instantly if you talk to the gods or the strangers or the demons. That's how life basically is in the Salsians. And, and this, this limit between you and the gods and the strangers and the demons is called the bard absolute. I'm sure we can fill that in here as well. B-A-R-R-E-D. It's not named after me, for God's sake. It's, it's bard like enclosed in English. The bard absolute. It's an absolute that's barred from you. It's a world that's barred from you. You cannot enter it. And that's the realm of the gods and the strangers, which is another tribe, or the demons below. The shamans have a monopoly on communication with these realms. This is where media starts. So in a society where we only talk to each other, we lived in nomadic tribes that were constantly on the move. We usually had some kind of priest or chief that led us, usually one of each, if we were lucky, like Moses and Aaron, leaving for the promised land. Uh, because men locate either a specialty in the body or a specialty in the mind. We always have two heroes of the priest or the chief that lead, and we need them to lead because the only one guy at the forefront is like Xi Jinping in China, we're moving towards ultimate destruction. That's what always ends with, when, ends with tyranny among men, right? So, so the priest and the chief will lead, and then the matriarchs at the very end, and the whole tribe moves forward, and it must move. Life during the Salsiont is 100% nomadic and the worldview is called nomadological. It's a nomadological worldview. It's polytheistic. We're still polytheists because what we do all the time, we communicate with the outside world is we go to see somebody who communicates on our behalf with the outside world. We were born that way. We've lived that way until very, very recently. Human beings have always gone to somebody to talk to them. So, for example, when you get monotheism, eventually we settle down, it's because the priests talk directly to God, but we talk to the gods. So we can either go and talk to one of the lesser gods, for example, the saints of Catholicism or the bodhisattvas of Buddhism or any of the gods of the whole polytheistic pantheon, right? We go and talk to any of the lesser gods. We can do that as human beings. We can never go and talk to God himself. If somebody needs to talk to God himself, we need to go to see priests. And the priests may then on our behalf talk to God. That's called monotheism. Monotheism always has to have a barred absolute between us and God. Christianity and Islam eventually experiment with getting rid of the barred absolute. And that's exactly what those religions today are incredibly problematic. And I'll explain later why that is the case. Because we're moving towards a very chaotic sort of apocalyptic state in the world today. As you probably sensed already, I'll now explain why. Because this is very much to do with media. So the way it works is that um, you go and see the shaman for anything where you need contact with the outside world. So, for example, you get a disease of some kind or, or you, you might need some exorcism. You, you, you have a, a mental disease. You need to get a demon outside out of you. Right. You can go and see the shaman to get that work done. 
Uh, you might also you might also be concerned that there's a stranger out there from another tribe that you happen to know from the last battlefield or whatever. You have actually ended up stealing his his sister or whatever, and and she's now inside your tribe, and you want to have some kind of communication with the other tribe. The shaman could probably act as a go between in that case too. So all peaceful communication between tribes also handled by shamans. So we lived like this for at least hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of years. This is genetic. We're born with this map, with the tribal map. We're born with the inner circle. The way I say it today is that it's, it's actually women and gay guys are more comfortable living in inner cities, whereas guys usually freak out living on their own in cities because a straight man should live much further out, probably in the countryside or something like that, have much more space around him and a lot less of density of people around him to feel fine about himself. That's exactly why as men got more affluent in our society over the last 100 years, they convinced their wives to leave the inner cities and move to the suburbs. And if you look at a suburb, it has houses with spaces in between and few plants now and then it looks exactly like the savannah. We just basically reconstructed the savannah and that's exactly why men not building houses in suburbs. And when the suburbs get too dense, it's always the man who comes to the woman and says, why don't we get a cottage house somewhere where we at least can go in the summer where, where there are too many people around in the suburbs as well. And we can have a little lake and you know, tons of space for the kids and things like that. And then they hopefully, if they have enough money, they buy a cottage. And, and if you're wealthy, you always had a castle in the countryside and you still do today. And you only have this little, you only have a flat in the city where you trade and, and you socialize, but you, you only stay in the city for as long as you have to, because if you're a man, you want to get out of the city. You want to get out of the countryside. You want to get out to the outer circuit. That, that's how you realize the tribe map really works for us today as well. So where did media come into the picture? Well, this is where my work with John Sedekis comes, comes in here, in, into the overall picture. So you're familiar with Clinton and Ignatov is probably the best scholar in Marshall McLuhan today. Okay, Marshall McLuhan was absolutely key for me and John Sedekis as well, which is why I'm also here at the Manifesto Media Academy tonight. And um, the key with McLuhan is that what was lacking in 20th century philosophy, when I started practicing in the 1980s and started studying intensely, what was lacking was actually the two most important things that happened in the 20th century were things that philosophers completely ignored. And those two things were technology and cosmology. Philosophy already started uh, uh, absorbing the enormous psychological revolution, the revolution of the psyche of psychology and psychoanalysis and things like that, eventually social analysis. That was already being absorbed in the 1980s, but was not being absorbed was actually fundamental understanding of the relationship between human beings and technology. And here's with guys like Norbert Weiner, cybernetics, Gregory Bateson, eventually Marshall McLuhan, a lot of these guys were North American. They were not considered philosophers at the time, but we have to claim them as philosophers later, the way we, we did not consider Nietzsche or Freud to be philosophers of the 19th century, but eventually we discovered that the work was so absolutely profound for the world of philosophy that philosophers later adopted them in the 20th century. The same thing here, very often the most important thinkers weren't considered philosophers when they acted. If anybody's an academic philosopher today, he's probably not very important at all in the future. You can take that for granted because the people who do profound work about today and about the future that's relevant to philosophy are probably currently operating in totally different fields. My guess is that they're probably operating somewhere between data and anthropology most of the time today. 
So this is the case here as well. I had to go through all these guys and study cybernetics, do Marshall McLuhan, before I could write, could write my first book, The Netocrats with John Sertiquist, published in the year 2000. And it's definitely, it's like a mixture of Nietzsche, Hegel, Marx, Deleuze, and McLuhan, tons of McLuhan in there. But I'm not going to go into McLuhan here because Clinton does that beautifully. I'm going to look instead at how we differentiated from McLuhan because McLuhan actually made a study on media and the direct interaction of the interface between media and human beings, so hot and cold media, and how we react differently depending on whether the media is hot and cold, et cetera. He had lots of theories about this. He had theories on television screens and, and uh, how radio waves function on us and things like that. But John and I were not really interested in that. While we pursued uh, technologies, we went directly to technology itself and its relationship to human beings. And we then realized that information technology is the technology par excellence. I mean, the, all other technologies are dependent on language and they're dependent on information technology. We develop technologies because we have information technology first. So we made it a lot more simple than McLuhan by simply looking at power structures and how different information technologies shape different power structures in different societies. And this, of course, where Thomas Kuhn comes into the picture and his study of paradigms. And what we did was that we took Thomas Kuhn's theory on paradigms and paradigm shifts and applied it to information technology. This is now common, but actually it was Jan and I who first started dividing history into four parts. The first one is precisely the sociant and the nomadic life of a society where spoken language is the most advanced form of communication, where Power is concentrated around the place where you store and process the most information, which is inside the head of the oldest woman of the tribe. The oldest person of the tribe, processing information in their brains with all the memories, everything they have. We call it wisdom today. Wisdom was the only knowledge you have access to because nothing was written down. Now that changed dramatically between 10 and 50, between 10 and 5,000 years ago. Of course, we know it started with the Sumerians. It started with the development of written language. And as soon as there was written language in place, people could develop technologies. They, they became, warriors became engineers and, and hunters became traders. And they started developing technologies and coins and things and they could trade and, and, and through irrigation, the first major technology and eventually the construction of large temples and eventually the construction of other buildings, we were permanently settled all of a sudden. I, I used to say that once upon a time, some 8,000 years ago, a fat woman in Babylon or somewhere around there sat down and somehow she convinced others that others that was a good idea. A bit like, you know, the first influence that would have done today with the internet. And suddenly we had permanent settlements. And, and these permanent settlements, although they were constant warfare one another, were so successfully in breeding more kids who could survive, you know, there was no increase in population during the last 50 to 100,000 years before permanent settlements arrived. The maximum population on the planet, as long as we were nomadic, was 3 million. Never more than 3 million anywhere on the, in total on the planet. Suddenly permanent settlements, Mesopotamia alone, a thousand years later, had half the world's population. And if that means one and a half to two million people, Mesopotamia can beat the shit out of anybody else. And the first empires are being established. Again, the infrastructure of an empire requires written language. Eventually within empires, of which the Persian Empire eventually became the most successful and mimicked by the Chinese and the Romans and the Indians. But eventually within empires, we developed nations of which the Jewish nation, by the way, is the, clearly the most 
the, the one that stands out because it still is today the only nation that is both a nation and a religion at the same time. So um, we have empires and nations being developed, large infrastructures, road nets, things like that. When, when you look at all these infrastructures that developed out of permanent settlement over the next three to 4,000 years, you will discover that every one of them is completely dependent on the existence of written language. Credit, debit, you know, taxation, written language. Mathematics, written language, it's all there. You have to write and you have to accumulate information. You have to also successfully process that information, which you eventually do in monasteries and things like that, and in bureaucracies. And that's how you run anything in this type of society. Now, this type of society explodes and grows. It also learns eventually not to go to war all the time. It eventually learns that since you have engineers around, you can actually build the temple, say, between two rivers. And you can have one guy from one river valley walk up the temple up the stairs. It's called the ziggurat if you go to Mesopotamia. And have another guy walk up the stairs from the other side of the temple. They can meet at the top and they can then declare that all you people of Euphrates, you have a, you have a god called Ishmael. And you can say all you people of Tigris, you have a god called Isaiah. And we have looked at, we have looked at the heritage of Isaiah and Ishmael and discovered they actually have a shared father. They're actually brothers and their father is called Abraham. And cheer on. Yeah, because now you don't have to war, go to war at least constantly. Like you can cool down a bit, not be so apocalyptic because actually you don't have to slaughter just about every second kid that's born, actually. And, and periods of peace are established. And eventually, about 800 before Christ, we get a long period of mostly peace called the Axial Age that runs all the way from Eastern China to Western Europe. And it's, it's an age of enormous prosperity, of longer peace periods, huge population increase. And usually we credit this period for a lot of the good stuff in, in history. John Sedeckis and I are currently working on a book where actually also discovered that almost all the bad stuff in history and all the bad ideas come from this period too. And we call those guys boy pharaohs and pillar saints. So basically they're little boys who want to have all the benefits of being grown up men, but not take the responsibilities. And unfortunately, today, still today, the world is full of them. They're usually called woke these days. So, um, but that's another story. Let's stay with the media here. So this is written language. And written language runs its course and creates a feudalist power structure. This is the argument. The feudalist power structure is run by monotheistic religion, which dominates over polytheistic religion. It's a priesthood dominating over the shamans and the local tribes. And, and, and it's, 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 the, it's the production of truth in any given society that goes feudalist. You then also have a monarchy where the chief has all settled down and creates a court around himself and he becomes the monarch. And the monarchs are then usually inherited to create some kind of stability around the monarchy. Then you have a nobility, the aristocracy. And these are the landowners because land owning is the most important asset in a written language society. It's a feudal society and it's a feudalist power structure. So the, the landowners own the land, right? And this structure works really well unless you get a new interruptive, interruptive media technology that beats the shit out of written language. That arrives in 1450, in Germany of all places. Suddenly we have cheap paper around and we could make printing presses and the cost of manufacturing a single book falls from about 150,000 euros per book to three cents. All these handwriters are unemployed within 100 years. By 1550, we're printing books like mad in Europe. Other parts of the world are, are starting to take off too. And any part of the world where you have a population of over 50% that can read and write, you get the revolution of Paris in 1789. 
You're probably familiar with this already because you're probably familiar with my work on this. So that leads into the industrial age capitalism, a new religion called individualism that we've been practicing, at least in Europe and North America for the past 400 years. Uh, it's part of the U.S. Constitution. It's certainly part of the French Constitution. And we hang on these sort of secular orders. That's our religion today. We have state and we have markets separated. And these are the sort of phallic orders that we live with today. And we've lived with this society up until very recently. In the 1980s, this all changes. Why? The internet arrives. Okay, please note here the difference between Bardot Soda Christ on one hand and McLuhan on the other. McLuhan is obsessed with the electronic age, he's obsessed with television sets, obsessed with radio, all these different media changes our perception of the world and we're affected by it. It's very Aristotelian. So are we, but we go even deeper in our study because we're not really interested in the fact that there's a new popular media technology around, as long as the social power structure of the media technology remains the same. And the Napoleonic power structure that was developed first in France, then in the United Kingdom and Germany, and eventually in America, and eventually spread around the world, with the Europeans conquering three different continents and colonizing them and all that, because with the printing press and some, you know, Cannon boats, you can conquer the world quite easily because nobody can resist you. And um, Napoleon established this sort of Napoleonic power structure. We put a Corsican midget like Napoleon at the top. You put one guy at the top, right? Either a priest or a king. And, and leading down from that, you, you then have a structure, a hierarchy. And very little information, enough information to run the structure pops up the other way. But basically, it's a one-way communication structure. The printing press delivers an enormously efficient one-way communication structure that happens to be advantages for men and disadvantages for women. It's not that there's anything wrong with patriarchy. The problem was that matriarchy was more or less dissolved because matriarchy is at the end of the nomadological line. This was a society where industry prospered. Okay, Industry took over from land ownership. Owning stock, well, having money, it's capitalism, having money and then spending the money and owning stock in industrial corporations, which is how you made a fortune. Almost entirely men, industrial structure. Then you have uh, academia that replaces the church. We throw out capitalism and Christianity, basically, or at least we marginalize them and make them underclass phenomena. And then you upper class go to university. They get academic educations. That's how they solidify their enormous power positions in society. You get an academic institution, an academic education, you, 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 you're fine, you're fine, you're off, you're flying. You will certainly belong to the elite once you get an academic education, as long as we lived in this society. Right? And the third institution that replaced the king, the monarch, was politics. Plays the same role. So you see how the structure, the triad, the power structure is repeated. This is what you won't find in McLuhan, but you will find in Bodhisattvaist this sort of Nietzschean power structural analysis, right? So we have politics, we get academia, and we get industry. And that's essentially the society we grew up in. That's essentially the society today that tried to save itself from going down. That's exactly what all the most terrible people are in politics. All the most terrible people are in old industry. They're, they're they, you know, advertising is worse than ever, and we hate it more than ever because it's actually dying. These guys just don't know that yet. Because all the different ways that they communicate are now failing. It's impossible for politicians to communicate today. It, it, that's why Donald Trump beat the shit out of them. 
He was just an internet star. He was a Twitter star. He beat the shit out of became president of the United States just to prove the politics, politicians are over and politics is dead. Industry is done with and over. Tech is taking over everything today. And when we tech, we mean a whole new world compared to old industry with algorithms and blockchains and all this shit. It's going to kill industry as we knew it entirely. And the same thing with academia. Who the hell wants to go to Harvard any longer when you can get the same education as Harvard online for like a hundredth of the cost? Why would you read a hundredth book in 50 and 50 when you can get printed copies of any book you like? It's the same thing now. History repeats itself. So it's a media explosion here. It's all about media. And it's all about a radical change of how we relate to information technology. And it changes the picture for men and women alike. So what is it that's so scary about the internet revolution? What's so scary is that if you take the Napoleonic structures, you think you've got Napoleon at the top and he's either an academic professor, the academic Napoleonic structure, or it is industrial corporate leader. That's the capitalist power structure, or he's a politician. And then he probably adheres to some kind of individualism. You're supposed to be a citizen. You're supposed to vote for him every four years and then keep your mouth shut because it's all about one-way communication. And then he decides for you how to live your life. That's the way politicians are spoiled. And that's how they used to run the world. Everything has changed, hasn't it? Yeah, everything's dramatically changed the last 30 years. What has happened was that this hierarchy, if you go all the way down to the hierarchy, when Napoleon was around in the early 1800s, he would consider the lowest part of the hierarchy. Now, everybody in the hierarchy could read and write. That's the whole purpose of industrial capitalist individual society. Teach everybody to read and write. They're a lot more useful if they can read and write than if they can't. And since so you can't teach just about everybody to read and write and count, you might as well do that. But you also have them at the very bottom. And the people at the very bottom, especially young men who really couldn't get ahead in the hierarchy, they were considered cannon fodder. At least you could do one thing. You could write them a note and say, you go first tomorrow and we go into the battlefield and you might die, but you die for the flag and the nation and we'll give you an honor burial and your girlfriend will be proud of you all you're dead. She'll get a new boyfriend anyway next week, so who cares, right? That's the way basically you treated the people at the bottom. What happened from the 1980s onward is that the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, the very cannon fodder of society, the men and women lowest in society with the lowest esteem, started talking directly to each other. And the elite didn't see. They didn't, see, they didn't want to see what the internet was. When I started studying this in the mid-1990s, what was shocking to me was that nobody was interested in what the internet really was. So I started taking on my sort of harsh tone and you know, <laughs> became this almost trickster-like philosopher. I said, like, you know shit, guys. And then I started preaching like that, and they had to listen. And that was what led into the first three books that I wrote with Jan, was basically this insight that the internet, the first thing it's going to do is not going to make money for the old elite. It's going to destroy the old elites. It's going to fuck up everything for them just like the printing press did before it 600 years ago. History is just repeating itself, but now on a much more dramatical scale. This is probably the biggest revolution in human history. Why? Because the cannon fodder are talking directly to each other. This is the first time in human history where the one-way communication of the elite to the masses breaks down entirely. That's called the apocalypse in the Bible. 
And although we have economic growth and we seem to have handled COVID-19 well, and we try to go back to normal, there's this eerie feeling among us right now. That's why men go to the men's movement to start doing men's work. And, and women try to look up other women because women look up older women. Because when we know something is eerily wrong within our society, we go back into the circuits. Women do go back into the inner circuit. Why is it so? Men go back into the outer circuit. And we try to find a priest who can guide us. And we tried to find the new chief because the old chief is redundant. He doesn't, he's not capable of running us any longer. He doesn't understand what's going on. We throw out the politicians. We throw out the corporate leaders. We throw out the academic professors. They're useless. They're useless. None of them are part of the men's movement. We can't have them. So what is this then? Well, what happens is the cannon fodder talk directly to one another. Basically, they're commenting on the old elite because that's what they used to do at the kitchen table at home. So they basically extend the kitchen table conversation. The family dinner conversation is extended to clan dinner conversation, to tribal dinner conversation. And then you end up in the perfect Facebook forums. They're perfectly sized. They're subcultures. They're identically sized according to tribes or clans. They're either about 250 in them or about 1,200. They go straight to these two sizes. And in the 1,200 size, you start having different groups that act out against one another, but they still stay within the same realm. So you have, you have some kind of a container, an ideological container you agree on, but you can have a thriving debate. When you go down to the size of 250, you get to clan size. Then everybody agrees. But then it's all about action. For men, it's all about a project. It's all about sharing a product. Why do we find a product? Why don't we set out something in the future and a place and a time in the future where we build something together and we start planning for building that and all of a sudden, all the guys go, yeah, I finally feel I have meaning and purpose because I was looking for meaning and purpose. I couldn't find it. Yeah, exactly. Because the meaning and purpose that the Napoleonic power structure writing with is done. It's either not there because the structures died or if the structure tries to provide you with a kind of meaning and purpose, it's, it, it makes no sense. It's just useless. It's crap. If you think about it, if you hear anything from politics these days, if you hear anything from old industries, say commercials or advertising these days, well, you hate that, don't you? And if you hear anything coming out of academia, any paper published at any university in the world today, nobody fucking reads it. If you read it at best because you're doing technology somewhere and you're working on electrical engine or something like that. But otherwise, if it deals with human beings and it comes out of a university from anywhere in the world, it's useless because it says nothing about the contemporary reality that you live with it. So what we need to solve here when speaking about media is that how do we as men behave, react, adjust to this new human technological environment. Well, the first thing to remember, because it was a premise when we started, is that human beings have not changed. We are almost identical to our fathers and our grandfathers, and our sons and our grandsons will be identical to us. We might have high hopes for maybe breeding some higher human race one day, but I'll tell you what, when the girls get drunk on a Friday night, they, they fuck with the wrong guy anyway, and then they come home and we have to be fathers for whatever they're pregnant with. That's the way the world works. It still works that way, still will work that way. Tinder hasn't really helped in improving on the genetic makeup of humanity. It has, no, it hasn't. So that's what we have to live with. And, 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 but that's good, though, because it gives us a constant to operate from it. That's what we're looking for. We don't want chaos. And of course, we're men, we have dick, we want phallus, we want order, right? We're supposed to provide order in society. The order we get here is that human beings are a constant. We can start from that premise. Now, technology is the one thing that changes. Yeah? 
And technology changes incrementally. So if you want to do technology, you become a protopian, not utopian, dystopian, become a protopian. A protopian meaning that you love incrementally improving technologies all the time. But what happens is specifically with information technology is that technologies improve incrementally, but one day, all of a sudden, boom, there's a tipping point and everything changes forever. One of those tipping points was the launch of the first smartphone by Apple. It was absolutely evident among technologists that the laptop that had become so popular and that the mobile phone that had become so popular would one day merge. But all the different attempts at creating the technology that merged the two failed because it usually wasn't good enough to be a laptop or good enough to be a mobile phone. The innovation had to be almost as good as the laptop, say 99% of a laptop, and almost as good as a mobile phone, say 99% of a mobile phone. And Steve Jobs finally managed to do that with Apple. They launched the first smartphone that just broke through completely. Okay, so we all got smartphones. I got one here, Samsung, because I hate Apple. I said that now. Uh, and on my, and I, it, by the way, it's, 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 on, it's on flight mode, so it's not going to call in the middle of all this. But if I just use this interface, if I, if I just look at myself in the blue and white way, if I look at myself, how I react to this machine, okay? What I do then is that I, I have the world served to me here. I know that I have access to more information here than all the world libraries 10 years ago. Directly in my pocket, I have access to all that information. I also have access to algorithms. And algorithms, if they're at least properly adjusted to me and not manipulated or, 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 or corrupted, uh, the, the algorithms will help me find what I'm looking for almost instantly. And if I stay around with some friends around, I've got a Zoom meeting, a team of guys, then we can certainly find out just about anything we want to find out. The world has become transparent to us. Everything is being stored. Nothing is being forget forgotten. Never happened before in history. Never happened before. All our behaviors, everything we do, their cameras, their microphones everywhere interacted with us. We're going towards a sensocracy. We're going towards a system of cameras and microphones everywhere with very, very sophisticated, huge data clouds connected to them. Do you think politics can, can compete with this? Of course it can. The Chinese already have a plan. What they want to do is to put a tyrant at the top of the whole machine. They love the idea of sensocracy. Their version of sensocracy is to put Xi Jinping at the top of the whole machine and then control all the other aspects of Chinese society and have all the data flopped in so he knows what's going on. So he can then control and tame and domesticate everybody. And then he can decide if you get to speak or not because he's sick and tired of all the Chinese people babbling online. And so are the Chinese people, by the way. Doesn't make any sense, right? So what are we going to do in that case? Are we, going, are we going to fight the powers that want to censor us or are we going to keep the enormous power when the counterfather stopped being counterfather and became people and starting to get power and have power? I suggest not. I suggest instead we're going to fight to keep our algorithms free and open, reflecting ourselves. And if we're smart, we also throw in a few little random things into our algorithms that disturb us because then we get smarter. It's called antagony. It's called having an opponent. You must always, if you want to be smart, look for somebody who disagrees with you because otherwise you're stupid, right? So... This is what we do if we're smart. We fight to keep the internet open because of its enormous power without being naive about the enormous apocalyptic destruction it's causing at the same time. We know that climate change is a challenge, not the dramatic one it's portrayed to be. It's just because women love it because they love, they love ghosts, right? Perfect ghost is climate change. You can never prove anything. You can just claim anything. Oh, it rained today, climate change, right? 
Okay. So if you did something wrong yesterday and you, you didn't you didn't fix the house and it rained in the house, it's climate change, right? Women love that. They, they, they love blaming something or somebody. That's what women are driving. Greta Thunberg. So you know, all these female demons are driving the whole climate change thing. But it is a concern, right? It has to be solved sooner or later. We need to build for men, we need to build fusion nuclear reactors and supply the world with enormous amounts of cheap, abundant, constant electricity. And then we can then we can water the deserts of the world. And finally, in history, we can have Cosmopotamia. We can have Sahara green, right? Have you ever thought of that? If you're a man, you should think that way today. That's the capacity of the internet when you start thinking about it. But the sensocracy, what do we want to do with the sensocracy? We don't want the Chinese model, why? Because we're born knowing that if you give all the power to one guy, he will then he will then he will then walk straight into disaster simply because we wouldn't even tell him where we're at. We won't give him our data. No, we want the priest and the chief. We want the two guys separated. And if you separate the priest and chief, we might as well let the women have the third power, which is the matriarch, who we're all responsible to anyway. Any ethics we ever construct with men has to end with the line: if women don't want to give birth to children in the society you create, you failed. That's the end line in any ethics for any man, right? You give the power to the matriarch. So you have the matriarch. She represents women. We have a priest and chief. You have a stable triad. It turns out it completely reflects the triads of previous paradigms. You want a paradigm to stabilize. If you want the internet society to stabilize, it has to have this structure of a triad. Priest, chief, matriarch. So let's appoint the smartest guy of them all who admires the strongest guy of us all. And then to appoint the strongest guy of all of us all and make sure he admires the smartest guy of us all. And then we have the two leaders. And then we give women the third role, the matriarchy, which is essentially the Supreme Court in the US Constitution. So you see how these triads are reflected throughout society and how they're required for media to run smoothly and for media to be productive and creative and not become destructive and to not lead us into an Orwellian media society, but rather keep society as open and free as we possibly can. That's where I think we're heading. So this is why I'm a philosopher. I wanna teach about this. I'm gonna preach about this if I have to. I wanna keep on researching. I wanna go into a constructive dialogue with all you guys out there who now join the men's movement and are deeply concerned about this and have ideas about it. But most of all, I want you to stay with my friends, Owen and Andrew here. I want you to learn how to use media for yourself. Because this is the thing. The vast majority of people online have no idea what they're doing. No idea. They're just shouting. And because if everybody else is shouting, they're shouting louder. So at least when we had the one-way communication side, society, we would go to, say, a theater, and we'd have a few appointed performers who were talented and worked hard who would perform on a stage. You know, or we would go to a political party and the party leader would give a speech. We would go to, to the university and, and an appointed professor would give a speech. We would go to the corporation, the corporate leader, or the boss of the company would stand in front of us and say, hey, we're going to sell more products and more services this year. Here's how we do it. Right? And he would hold us up like a leader. We want to look for those leaders. We certainly want to do that again. What happened, though, is that the stage has been plundered by the audience since the entire cannon fodder of the hierarchy have crushed the hierarchy. They've all stormed up on the stage. So the society we live in today is a society where everybody is on the stage and there's no audience left. There's no audience left. 
This is what Instagram is. This is what Facebook is. This is what Twitter is. Very, very, very few people stand out because they manage to scream louder or at least scream more interestingly. They get more followers than others, but very, very, very few people do. We call these people the notocracy in our work, the, the new elite. And the rest, the mass of people are just a concentrate who get their social media and scream at the top of the lungs and nobody listens. That's the actual structure, the power structure of contemporary society. Power is now concentrated more than ever in the hands of the few. Of the few own, again, own the data. Of the few actually manage to get through all this noise and are listened to because they're fewer than ever. They're fewer than ever. I have 122,000 followers on Twitter. I don't say that to brag, but I say, conspire you guys. I'm a role model. I don't think any one of you is even close to 122,000 followers on Twitter. Well, then get better at it. Improve. Listen to Owen and Andrew. Learn how to use cameras, how to lose microphones, how to use the smartest of your head, how to listen into people, how to communicate in an attractive way in a world where one-way communication is dead and communication has gone interactive. The trick is how do you become a successful interactive commentator? It's a whole new game. There are no schools in interactivity. There are no schools in how you listen best and still communicate properly back to other people. There are no schools in how you keep your integrity while listening to other people at the same time. There are no schools in how you keep a sociopath inside your social network for as long as you can actually use him before you deservedly kick him out with a warning sign. There are no schools in interactivity. There are no schools on how you're human in this environment. It's totally open to experimentation. We're, we're, we're in the 1470s. The vast majority of people are guessing about the internet and all their guesses are wrong. We're guaranteed that Google, Facebook, all these guys will fail because there'd be other guys coming along further down the road who'll be much better at this than they are. And I need you guys to join me in experiment, experimenting and, and take out the best of your phallic personalities, whether you're a priest or whether you're a chief or whether you go with a priest, and you're a monk, or whether you're a soldier and you go with a chief or whether you're both, maybe you have elements of both a soldier and a monk inside of you. Tell people your story, connect with other people Listen to them, help them tell their story. Get engaged. Understand that at least half a men's work from now on will go online. Put your men's group online. Have a digital men's group. Experiment with that. Have a physical men's group where you live as well. Experiment with the format. You live in two worlds at the moment. You live in both the physical and the digital. And you can experiment in between. Go to Burning Man. For God's sake, go to Burning Man, go to the borderland in Scandinavia, go, 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 go to nowhere in Spain, go to these participatory festivals. By the way, you find the most attractive, fun, doers, sexy girls in the world there. If you want to look for girls, that's the place to go. Highly recommended. Why? Because participatory culture is precisely where digital and physical meet. The best place to learn how to operate successfully online is to merge digital and physical. But for God's sake, unless you're a computer games designer, stay away from the fucking computer games and the endless porn sessions late at night because they're going to make you a loser. If you're not understanding the internet is an interactive medium where you're supposed to interact with other men and women and you just use it to consume, you're already the new cannon fodder at the bottom because the people who don't communicate with anybody else at all are gonna be the new counterfighter. And this time around, there is not even going to be a battlefield for you to sacrifice your life on.
you're going to be sedated. You're going to be a problem. You're going to be given psychiatric drugs just to keep yourself calm. Stay away from anything out there that fosters you to isolate yourself and start living with other men to then date women to become successful in this sort of mixed digital physical realm we're moving right now and do it with me. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Um, that was amazing. I'm really happy with that. It's, it's not, it wasn't just a talk. I think you were mapping out what we're actually trying to do here and, and saying it so much better than, than I could. So, so uh, it's wonderful that, that you could express all that, um, you know, in this talk. Um, I guess I'm just going to start with a, a question or two and then, and then maybe Owen has a question and we'll move it to the larger group. Um, you can put your questions in the chat uh, and we'll, we'll pick you out and ask you to read them aloud. Um, I guess my question is, you talked about this triad of politics, academia, and industry. Um, and I'm wondering how, and you talked about the triad of the chieftain and the, and the warrior and, and the matriarch. I'm wondering about the social triads. Like what's, what is the triad today? Uh, uh, what, what is the larger triad? What's like, what are those, how is that operative today? How would you describe that? Oh, we're, um, we're, we're in between worlds. So this is exactly what this age yeah. is apocalyptic. The, the, last yeah, book, right. the last book I wrote with John, Digital Libido, it, it's a very dark book, but it's also the book about now and say the next 30 to 50 years. And, and um, this is exactly what it gets really dangerous, right? So we had we had the 30 year war of Europe with half Europe's population slaughtered. And the printing press started establishing itself because whether reformation and you know the rebellion against the Catholic Church, all kinds of shit went on. So it's gonna probably get very blood and dramatic first. That's very, very likely. Let's take that for granted. I, I think it's not so much about the United States and China going to war, but rather the United States and China and Russia imploding. I think the old large political structures will implode eventually. And city-states like Singapore and Dubai are much better model for, for this sort of more and more digital realm we're in right now. But I, wanna, but I wanna say one thing though, could be a good opening. The point here is that we take, if you take the shamanic character, we know that shaman is really weird and really rare and, and dangerous and risk-taking, right? The problem is that the shaman is the guy who was first on a stage, if anybody was on the stage, because the stage was in the forest. It was out in the wilderness. To go to see the shaman was a very dramatic thing to do. So the shaman is the origin of theater. He's the origin of the guy on the stage. And later when we permanently settled, we, we then put the priest in the shaman's position. And next to the priest, you put the king. And it's the, pri it's the priest who talks and speaks and tells us the story about why the tribe now has to permanently settle and why that's a good idea, right? I'm a Zoroaster myself. These a lot with these things. But the problem today is that when the entire old power structure, politics, academia, and industry falls apart, and everybody now has media, then everybody wants to be a rock star, fashion model. All the characters that young people aspire to today when they go online are shamanic. That is incredibly dangerous because these guys are not born shamanoid. They have no understanding what it means to be shamanic. They don't even know what they're doing. And I'll tell you what, I work with psychiatry these days because as a psychoanalyst, a philosopher, I have to work with psychiatry, right? And we've discovered that we have a huge explosion in psychiatric care. There are also young men coming in, which is worrying me, but actually the big flood coming in after COVID-19 are 20 year old girls. Their heads are fucked. They've been on Instagram day and night the last two and a half to three years. 
There were no more pictures coming in since about a year and a half ago, right? So they just, they're just repeating the same pictures all over again. Every third, every third teenage girl in the Western world today is suicidal. The eating disorders, uh, gender dysmorphia, all these signals we have, you know, psychiatric diseases that did not even exist when I was a kid are exploding. The apocalyptic state today is really caught with 20-year-old girls. And if any one of you is a father with the teenagers at home, you know what I'm talking about. Because you might have a girl who's a leader at school, but even she's concerned. Like, she's concerned at best. But I, I would say the majority of teenage girls today are affected by this way. This is what Instagram has done to these girls. I tell you what, when we get around to this historically, what we had to do eventually with the tobacco industry and eventually had to do with the opiate medical industry and sue the hell out of them and kill them and take their billions away from them, we will have to do with Facebook eventually. I firmly believe that Francis Ogan, a real matriarch ever there was one, was the whistleblower of Facebook this week. And when she exposed Facebook, Instagram, and, and, and WhatsApp for what Mark Zuckerberg has done, they were going after 11-year-old girls next. They're worse than French pedophile priests, these people. I, I, I just want to say that because we admire the shaman. The priest is shamanic. He is a phallic character. The male shaman is somebody we all need to go to. When we go to the confession booth, we go to see priests, right? When we listen to an inspiring talk where we're going next, we go and see the priest. But only one out of 10 men is a monk. Nine men out of 10 is a soldier. You know, right. you know, Alexander, you know the theater of cruelty, like Anton Artaud, he had this idea of the theater of cruelty. Where, all, where he put all the everybody on the stage and nobody, nobody, the one person off the stage. So it just reminds me of what, that's what exactly you're, what, what you're talking. It's like today. a theater exactly. of cruelty. That's or, or, or the, the way internet. I put it yeah. is because it's kids and they don't know what they're doing and their parents don't understand shit. Uh, uh, we wrote and did a little bit. Unfortunately, the book Lord of the Flies, you're all familiar with it, right? It was in Squid Game recently now. So Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Flies was never considered to ever be philosophical work, but now we have to consider it as a work of philosophy. Because Lord of the Flies actually, he tells us what kids do to each other when we're not around any longer. And what they do then, because they look at their parents and their parents are mimicking the shamanic. The parents all want to be, you know, it, all the behavior of 40 year olds today are like, they, they, they idolize the shamanic. The shamanoid is now the ideal. That was never the point. The shamanic trait was always supposed to be tiny minority risk takers way out in the forest, way away from society. And that's what I think we need to address first in our work here towards what we men would want to do online. Okay, great. Um, let's open this up to, to more questions. Uh, maybe Owen has some questions. And I also want to mention that after this session, uh, we, we're opening a kind of a coffee house, which of course Alexander is invited to if he has the time, but uh, the, just it's, uh, what is the software called, Owen? Uh, it's kind of like you 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 mingle around and meet people and, and, and get in various groups so that uh, you know we, you can all have conversations with each other. Um, so we're going to do that after the the uh, after the whole session. So stick around for that. Yeah, it's called um, wonder.me. I'm going to stick a, a link to it in the chat box afterwards. You can click on it and then you get a feel for it. It's a very cool platform. Um, so I guess maybe a follow up to Alexander, where you were going with talking about the young women. Can you talk a bit about what you called the, uh, like the bipolarity epidemic in young men as well, which seems to be the other side of this. Then again, I'm seeing a lot of that in doing men's work as well. Bipolar. And you know, even in myself, like I have mad mood swings. I know many guys involved in men's work who do as well. It's yeah, exactly. So, so, so the explosion among men, uh, among young men in psychiatry today is, is all about bipolarity and the 
sort of different disorders that go with it. Uh, what happens is with, with the male brain is that it, it can handle a certain sensory intake, right? Uh, but we no longer live in the countryside, we live in cities. We no longer meet on average 100 people during a lifetime, we meet 100,000 people during a lifetime. We watch millions of people during a lifetime. Okay, so this is not this is not what the male brain was built for. The male brain was built for hunting and 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 uh, warfare, right? Essentially, or or actually supporting hunting and warfare, if nothing else. So, uh, what happens is that the men who were the most talented at hunting and warfare, because they could handle a large sensory intake, are now suffering from a massive sensory overload. And what sensory overload does to your brain is that it starts to shake. So what you could usually handle with your bipolarity, we were all bipolar in the sense that we have mood swings and there are good days and there are bad days. And some guys are great in the morning and some guys are great at night. Actually, that's also part of your archetypology. You can actually trace your personality. You can, you can trace how you can be different from other men and therefore support other men with your, with your talent simply by looking at these things too. So bipolarity is part of that. We have different curves, right? But these curves now go, boom, they start swinging madly because the tension around us in an urban digital environment as men is immense. And that explains why the guys go offline when the social networking gets too intense and they start playing computer games just to relax, which is fine. And then they go into porn because they haven't really talked to any girls. So the girls are not seeing them. So they, they, they basically think that pornography will, will, will replace the girl. And, and, you know, it does for a while, but not for too long. Right. And, and this gets eerie with the guys. And, and what happens is they just start to isolate themselves. And here's the interesting thing. If you, if you remember the tribal map, when a girl reacts to something is fundamentally wrong, she reacts outwardly. That's why girls blame others for her problems. It's a natural instinct of a girl because, because it's not in the inner circle. You can't blame the dense inner circle with other girls and problems. She blames others. And if there are men out there, she blames them, right? That's why we have a pandemic in law right now with girls who say that I had bad sex with this guy three years ago and then the girlfriends go, it was really bad, right? It was really bad, it was really bad. And then suddenly uh, an evening later and some glass of white wine is turned into a rape story. And suddenly it's a police report the next day. And we now in Sweden see lines of men being jailed for four years, each one of them for rape, meaning the other men are programmed to kill them when they go to prison for just a girl badmouthing them. It's hysterical in Sweden right now because Sweden is incredibly advanced. Same patterns in South Korea. The countries that are at the, at the forefront of the digital revolution where people are most digitally savvy are also the country where we see these problems first. So look at Scandinavia, the Baltic countries and Korea, you see the patterns very, very quickly. And, and this is what's happening right now. And the girls react that way because the, if something is wrong, she reacts that there must be something wrong out there. We should, this man, listen to paranoid women in the tribe. It is paranoid women at the center of the South first react that something is wrong out there because they're very, very, very protective of their daughters and the children. They're probably to be that way. But when the guy feels something is wrong, he blames himself. It's his fault. His super ego swells. The Korean Seon monk, the philosopher Byung Shul Han, has written beautifully about that if we assume that the amount of sex drive in a society is always a constant, we must also assume that the amount of violence drive in a society is always constant. So if our society increasingly looks pacifist and we've solved the problem with open aggression, it only means there's more passive aggression instead, meaning more female rather than male aggression in our society. 
And so women get aggressive when men are not aggressive any longer, but they get aggressive in a different way, in a passive way. This affects the men too. So women are passively aggressive to the extent they've never experienced before. There's tension in society everywhere they go. They live in these loaded urban environments, often on their own alone. And, and then they're attacked by sensory overload constantly. They can't make sense of. And the mood swings start to go up and down intensely. And they cannot go to work and they cannot study. They can't do the things they're supposed to do. They lose all meaning and purpose and they blame it on themselves. You see through social phobia, and that's the ultimate tragedy. We have to actively go and find these guys because they're locking themselves up, terrified of the outside world. Usually the only person they ever talk to when they're 23 is their fucking mom who gets nothing. They go back to the tit, which makes it even worse. So we're gonna see mental institutions loaded with these Instagram eating disorder freaks. We got to see mental institutions loaded with 40-year-old women who broken down completely, burned out, like Byung Shulhan says, because they don't know what they're up to. All the promises they were given by our society from politics and academia and from industry have turned out to be bluntly, you know, untrue. Because after 22 years old, you go old in the eyes of men and women, if you're a woman, right? Uh, but for men, it's somewhere between 30, 23 and 35 where the breakdown comes. It's a massive mental breakdown. They blame everything on themselves. They don't say anything. And that's why you always find them in the psychiatric emergency unit, which is the worst place to handle your psychiatry. The worst place to handle it. But that's where you find these guys. And we need to start looking for them. We need to find men's work and men who are willing to go to these units and just be willing to listen to a brother one at a time and tell them you must not blame yourself. It's, it's an enormous complex thing that's going on, but it's apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. So the, the answer to my question is that we don't really know what the next forms are. We're, we're in between worlds. Yes, we, we, we work with it philosophically speaking. We know that it's gonna be informationalists because the people who possess and process data, which is the new capital, they'll be incredibly powerful. We know there'd be sensocrats, that we know the people who will work actively with AI to control the world, control society. They will say they will solve the climate crisis. They will tell us they will lock up the atomic bombs. We'll give them all the power because we have to, because nobody else has solved those problems. The only people who work on a global level are these sensocrats. And the third one, which I have the greatest hope for, is that engineers make a huge comeback and traders make a huge comeback. The things that men are great at makes a huge comeback called the digital patriarchy. And these are the protopians, they're the third category. And they replace the previous academics. They replace the previous churches. That's exactly why men's work is deeply spiritual because it's protopianism, it's a spiritual exercise. I would like to say that an engineer today who incrementally improves the world every day through technology must start to consider himself a spiritual person because the new priests will be these priests to preach you know, the gospel of engineering because engineering is the only way to solve the world's problems, including these problems we're talking about here. So, Maybe Eskel, do you want to uh, handle the questioning? Yeah, even sure. what, following the chat? Yeah, sure. Because, Just uh, ask, maybe ask people to, to read their question to Alexander. Yeah, I think yeah. so, exactly. So, Klaus, you asked the first one. You want to repeat it here? Yeah, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's about democracy. Do we have to accept this democracy, democracy as we know it? will die, I mean, democracy as a nation-state phenomena, a nationalistic phenomena. 
what will happen in in the future uh, if you haven't noticed it's already dead yeah it's pathetic it's just theatrical though um america replaced the tv show gumbo uh south park character with uh with a demented corpse right it, 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 the evidence for the irony of this is immense uh politics still though has influence because it, the old paradigm is still around Capitalism is still around. People still live in individualism, although that's moving down into the underclasses now. But that's exactly why these guys try to appeal to the underclasses, not to the elites any longer, because the elites couldn't care less. Even the World Economic Forum is over. So the entire structure we knew, even, even the nasty part of the structure is dead. I would say democracy is dead. Uh, uh, there's a gap, what we're going to replace it with. And that's what we're working intensely as philosophers on models for open censocracy. And the free and open sociocracy is built around the triad. It starts with the Persian Empire 3,700 years ago. It survived for 2,200 years. The Egyptian Empire tried dictatorship like China today, survived for six years before it imploded. That's why Egypt never came back after the Bronze Age. Because with one river only, they got dictatorship from day one. And after Knoton, it failed and it never returned. So this is what we're saying in the book. Is that we're not moralizing against Xi Jinping in China. That's too cheap. We're just basically saying... Xi Jinping's idea for China and the world is unsustainable. It will break down. And what we're advocating to avoid chaos, essentially, to be men, to, to promote an order that works, is a free and open sensocracy. And the interest is not that intense yet in Europe and North America, but Jan and I have worked intensely in Taiwan, Korea, India, Japan. Why? Because they're the ones that see China thoroughly and know that they have to provide an answer. And they did manage to handle the COVID-19 crisis a lot better than China, where it originated from to begin with. And that proves that we can certainly create free and open sociocracy. But this is all meticulous work that has to be done properly now, although we're running out of time because otherwise Chinese-like models will dominate. So I think that to rethink democracy, like it wasn't democracy that was important. It was the power splitting. The US constitution is fantastic. The US Constitution is built on the French Revolution. The French Revolution built its idea on the Persian Empire. It all goes back to the idea, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, there were three siblings that led the Hebrews out of Egypt to Palestine. It's not just one guy, three guys, right? Two men and a woman. And that, that reflects in, that's reflected in, in the precedent, in the Congress, in, 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 in the Supreme Court. That's why I think the only thing that will make the United States survive this time around is the Constitution itself. China doesn't have one. Sweden doesn't have one. I think any territory in the world today that has to have a solid constitution, that has the matriarchy installed as the ultimate post of, of response to what men are up to, will not work. So if, if you get to the bottom, to the root of the phallus, that's what they call it, to the bottom of culture, to see what actually has worked over the last 3,700 years, what has worked is power splitting, not democracy. And that's what we need to say. Oh, that's great. I'm, my mind is blown. This is amazing. <laughs> I think I wish uh, I want uh, Oscar, our youngest man from Stockholm. You have a, you put a good question in there. You want to take it and ask directly? Yeah, sure. So I've been reading Digital Libido um, last week, and I read a passage that had an impression on me. And I think it's something along the lines of um, you have a whole system with a bunch of philosophers, but you have an idea of something you call uh, an eternal moment, I think. I'm reading it in Swedish, so I don't know if it's yeah, the same. It, it's, called, it's called the infinite now in English. And this is our work. Actually, are you familiar with Academy of Ideas? 
Yeah, I've seen. I've Academy, seen okay, yeah. I, I can type it in. This is for all you guys here. This is a great way of looking at, at YouTube. So Academy of Ideas, I don't know who this guy is, but he's just beautiful, this man. Uh, uh, Academy of Ideas, uh, I think they released something last week with Vaclav Havel and Nietzsche in it that talked about the necessity for the peak experience to make the rest of your life meaningful. This is a very non-Christian and non-Muslim idea, I should say that to start with. So if you go into the realms of Tantra and Sutra studies, I will certainly go more into this work with Andrew and Thomas as we continue to the next season of our, uh, our, our, our work. But uh, I would say the infinite now is the idea that if you have an immense ecstatic experience in your life, the, the, the easiest one to say is that maybe you're actually in the room where, you, where your wife give, gives birth to your first child. Most men report that's it. It's, it's a life changer. Nothing is like it forever. But, but the, the nature of the infinite now is that it's an experience that is so intense and so beautiful and so ecstatic that once you're in it, you realize it's wonderful to be here. Like it's the ultimate thing that could happen to you. But if I would have to stay here with a pure heart, it would be a horror if you had to stay there. And that's when you know you're in the infinite now. I'd say that the way most guys try to explore today is with, if you do it with a friend, you do it with psychedelics. If you do it with a woman, maybe, maybe if you do really, really good tantric sex for six hours, you reach that peak with her, right? Or, or for example, a really, really strong transformative experience at just a tipping point in your life. All of a sudden, your life changed dramatically. And it was beautiful what happened to you. And you're just grateful for the rest of your life that you, had, that you got the chance to go through that experience. And that's the nature of the infinite now. The infinite now, the lesson to learn from the infinite now, which is deep spiritual teaching, is that it should be of the nature that if you experienced it once, you memorize it. And you memorize it in such a way that you don't ever have to do it ever again. That is the difference between the infinite now and the kick-seeking that abusers do. So say, say, say if, if you see kicks all the time, you want more and more intense kicks, right? You immediately become an abuser. You become an addict. That's what all addicts are. And if you want to avoid drug addiction, sex addiction, all these addictions, you better start by preparing before you go into these experiences by removing all the different traumas and other shit you got in your life. Because if you, for example, have a terrible relationship with your mother and you start having sex with women, you're going to go a sex addict in no time at all. And none of your relationship with women are going to work. So this is why the teaching on the infinite now is so important because it gives you hope that you could possibly experience the infinite now if you're lucky, at least once in your life. And if you experience the infinite now, the way you do it is you're well prepared for it. Although it suddenly just happens. It almost shocks you when you're there. Say you do psychedelics with a friend, you could experience that. But once you experience it, you will experience that coming down from the experience is what teaches you something. It makes you a real grown up. And then you memorize the experience. You don't ever have to do it again. But if you have that experience, say sexual with a woman, or you have the psychedelic experience with a man, or it's just an experience of intense natural beauty with a, with a friend or something like that. Say, you, you, you decide, but it's just the most intense experience you ever have that is beyond words, beyond description. It cannot be described. You'd rather keep it sacred with your friend. But I can assure you that the sign you've experienced it and you've handled it carefully, so you came down, you memorized it, and that friend or that woman you share that experience with is somebody you can just look into the eye the rest of your life and they know you. They just smile. They just look at you and they know you. Of course, you have that experience together. That is the infinite now. Nietzsche writes about it. He calls it Rausch. <laughs> it's brutal German word. Um, usually, it's referred to as flow in contemporary American English, although it's flow has this, all these words in English become California and inflated by now. It's just useless. As soon as flow was in the self-help books, I knew the, the word was dead. I prefer, again, to use the, either the German word Rausch or the expression the infinite now because the fact that it's a contradiction 
means that it is beyond description. That's why we use that term. Mm. Mm. I think it's going to be very important eventually in men's work, but that's we take the men's work into the tantric realm. So we we got to go slowly in that direction. So because we, we we don't want to make a single guy who joins men's work or who comes here online here with MMA to ever become an addict. We want to avoid addiction. And to, the way to avoid addiction is to be well prepared for these experiences before you go through. Mm. Great, great. Thanks, Alexander. The infinite now was there. Uh, Mike Allison, you put a little while ago a concern and a question. Yeah, so this kind of dovetails with uh, what Klaus was asking about democracy. So if democracy is is dying, and we've kind of felt like that was probably coming for a while, and then but then COVID hits and we give them all the power, they have more power now than they've they've ever had. Um, and this is also kind of in in relation to the Facebook whistleblower. Like I see that as an opportunity to seize more power. There's more censorship. Um, and I agree with you, like there's a problem certainly with uh, mental health and social media and online communication. So I guess, how do we how do we solve that without giving over more institutional power to this decaying uh, structure? Um, and uh, is that maybe part of the decay of the structure is that they just <laughs> kind of go through this totalitarian cycle and burn themselves out? Yes, excellent question, Mike. This refers directly to a speech I gave three weeks ago at the Crypto Castle outside Leipzig in Germany. I work with the crypto guys all the time. I wrote the Netocrats, it's by Rick Falkwinger to start the first pirate party. I've been with the hackers all along. Jan Sedekus works with hackers in Taiwan. We work with the hackers all the time, right? Why? Because they are the sort of gorillas today who create decentralized platforms and they all hate Facebook and Google and the giants. So they are the ones that are building platforms in a such more, much more communal space, much more like participatory culture. So I relate Burning Man, for example, to the hackers world, and they often now start to overlap, which is fantastic. So my speech three weeks ago in Leipzig argued this very simple thesis that we think of a coin you got in front of you, not a Bitcoin, they're overrated, but do you think you got a coin in front of you? One side of the coin is algorithms and the other side of the coin is blockchains. And this blockchains lock history into the past. So we cannot change history at all, which is fantastic in the sense that nobody can bullshit us any longer. Capitalism was a great bullshit detractor. It removed a lot of bullshitting between people because it basically forced us to put a price on anything we could sell. And it also forced us to declare those things holy and sacred, which we would not sell. The things you don't sell, like somebody you love, you don't sell love, for example. You can sell sex, but not love. It's a perfect example of things we do not sell. Capitalism actually fostered us to a spiritual point. We had to recognize what was spiritual to us. So. If you think of the coin, the algorithm and, and the blockchain, the blockchain undoubtedly locks history. Anything that happens at any point in time, it will lock forever. Now, that is actually why these huge tech giants are terrified of blockchain, because they like to manipulate the algorithms, they like to corrupt the algorithms, and they like to conform the algorithms. Please note these three words, because they actually apply directly to the old power structures. It is politicians. They're woke today who want to manipulate the algorithms so they dictate what you're going to see when you start searching on Google. It is the last remnants of the commercial forces of capitalism that through advertising that's getting more and more desperate because we hate it, we call it spam, we throw it away. We're going to consider the abolition of advertising historically as more important than the abolition of slavery eventually because we're going to hate advertisers so much because they're the biggest fucking most awful liars ever. The most horrible people we ever have with advertisers. 
But if finally went into a children's head still. We want to get rid of these guys. They're worse than slave owners, right? And we finally start seeing the picture. Okay, they're now trying to corrupt us. The ads used to be a warning sign when you did the Google search. Now the ads are at the top of Google. Leave Google. Start searching somewhere else. Don't go anywhere where they put the ads at the top because that's not the algorithms. That's just the guy who pays the most for trying to own your eyes and your ears. And why would you sell your eyeballs and your ears to somebody you hate? Okay, so, and then the conformation of academia. Academia is taking over, for example, by woke politics. What are they doing? They try to conform us. They try to make us all the same. They talk about uh, diversity, but all the diversity they want is diversity of looks, but they hate the diversity of opinion, which makes people stupid. If you conform, you go stupid. You only hear the same thing all the time. And no, no human being wants any of this. That's why I think, for example, we men in men's work would suddenly find out the next few years, for example, that Christian Republican women in Texas are allies of ours because they're going to hate Google when they realize that Google wants to turn their kids into secular gay guys from San Francisco. Right. So the thing is this. You want the algorithm to reflect you. You want the algorithm to reflect your tribe. And you want the algorithm to challenge you in a friendly way that you can handle, which is called the antagonist principle. That's all you want an algorithm to do. When I started teaching algorithms 20 years ago, including Google, I taught this. But since then, the manipulation of politics, the corruption of money, and the confirmation of academia has gone into the algorithm itself. That's exactly now where the old institutions that are dying and decaying are putting the last totalitarian forces to try to contain the internet. We must fight back. And that's what I recommend all you guys, if you've got a chance, become a hacker. Become a hacker. Go into the hacker networks. They're decentralized. They're flat. Uh, you know, and and they hate woke, <laughs> and they hate they hate power grabbing, and they hate this, they hate centralization. They they want to go for a decentralized world, and I think we can benefit enormously as men who take responsibility for ourselves by going into that decentralized world. Mm, great. Become a hacker. Yeah, and yeah, when they censor you, leave, go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Get your fucking VPN now. You know, mm. that's what the kids do in China. Learn from the kids in China. There are 40,000 Taiwanese hackers every day who provide millions of kids in China with VPN so they can get around the Chinese Communist Party. The day when the Chinese Communist Party cannot provide economic growth to the extent that they've actually produced to do by now, uh, they will probably fall because of these guys. These are the Taiwanese hackers are the true heroes of the world today. And many of them are young men, the vast majority. We should celebrate them. Mm. Yeah, great, Connor, thanks. Uh, Philip from Yerbeau, next question. Yeah, and my question is about the shamanic caste and, engineer and genetic engineering. And I wonder, how do you think genetic engineering will affect the shamanic caste? Will the traits be selected for or against and how could this affect society at large? Okay, the only thing that's even more chaotic than young girls' Instagram accounts in the world today is biology. <laughs> biology was always the biggest chaos of all. There's nothing that contains more data than biology. Once we now move into the world of biology, the reason we're only moving into it now is because the computers have only recently become powerful enough to even begin to understand biology. Okay, when it comes to genetic engineering, it, it's already happening, but it's only on the surface. We're only at best modifying tiny little things that we hardly know what we're doing and we're guessing our way through the genome. And even the most cynical little Chinese parent who wants super kids will still want the kids to be born healthy, which means that you can't do that much with the genome right now and try to change it in any certain way to get rid of a certain problem. 
And I also think there's another development coming and those are the nanorobots and there's tons of shit on new sort of med tech and biotech coming that way as well. When it comes to med tech and the development of little things, you can you can push with a little shot inside your skin and it takes care of your problem and ruins your cancer, things like that. Then the whole issue of genetic engineering becomes kind of boring, doesn't it? Because if you can actually affect the results of your genetic makeup later in life, why would you then be so adamant that you must change it beforehand? Right. So if you're just going to get rid of a certain number of Botox injections by changing a certain skin thing uh, before you're born or your embryo, then there's probably way, 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 way more expensive and difficult for the foreseeable future than just taking the Botox injections when you're 45. So I would say let's let's put genetic engineering in the category of things to come but it's not gonna have a dramatic effect on our now. We're gonna be born the same way we were born for many, many decades to come or generations to come. And that's why the shamanic cast are gonna stay 4% of the population and the androgynous cast gonna stay 4% of the population. And the vast majority of people will happily be straight men and women who try to make a do with each other. Mm. Good, good. Are there any, uh, any more questions? Among the men, I'm sure Andrew and Owen are sitting sitting on a bunch. There's a new one that's just come up from Nils in the box. I see. Ah, great, Nils. Yeah. So what are the possibilities of powerful collaborations between the paradigms? So just uh, if I imagine a professor at Uppsala University, let's say, in, in philosophy, and uh, she's uh, an academic in that power structure, and let's say she's a powerful woman or a powerful man, and she's collaborating with an actor in the new paradigm, so let's say Protopian. Uh, can can their collaboration revivify the, the decaying structure of, of sort of academia, or is like maybe just put that on a timeline? So I'll stop talking now. I was just going to think if they have a sexual relationship, I would fully endorse it. So if you want to fuck your female professor, good luck. <laughs> I'll start there. Uh, no, seriously. Um, the thing is this, if you look at the map of Europe, for example, um, when it came to industrialization, which started in the UK in England, uh, it went so rapidly, there was an entire new class of people uh, that's, that did the whole thing. And basically the, the nobility were sitting on the countryside in, in the huge farms and they became poor eventually. And they didn't really realize that the world had changed until these guys came from the cities with tons of money and bought their property and started laughing at them, right? Uh, the same thing happened in France. It was only when industrialization started in Germany, which was much later in the 19th century, way into the 19th century, but then really exploded because it was very well organized, whilst the Germans copied the French and the English, and they learned the lesson. And Germany was the only country, only major economy in Europe, where actually people that had long last names and came from the nobility also became industrialists. Not fully, but to a certain extent. So I would say that the old paradigm will fight the new paradigm with tooth and nails and everything it has, it will also be bad at fighting that fight because the old paradigm will then absorb the lower talents of the world. Like the higher talents of society go straight into tech and they go straight into digital and they become protopians and industrials and sensocrats without hardly even knowing it. That's what, especially young men, that's what we talk about digital patriarchy will return. Men will again benefit, women will be left behind uh, because women are not up to what actually is required to run digital. Men are much better at it. The women are basically just babbling their time away with each other, which is their equivalent to doing pornography. And almost all women are doing that, which means that Instagram is actually women's worst enemy today. It's not helpful to them. It's a fake power. It's a power. It's not actually authentic power. We look at the overall picture. 
so I would say that the old paradigm, because it absorbs the bad talent, tons of woke people who nobody wants to listen to. So you start a Twitter account, nobody follows you. Then you go into politics. You start an Instagram account, nobody follows you. Then you go into academia. <laughs> you, you start, you start, uh, you, you go on WhatsApp, you don't make any friends on any of these social media, and you think you're going to go into old industry, when in the old industry, you're hardly, you're hardly even worth anything because you're competing with a robot these days. So the problem is that the, the, the old paradigms absorbing all the wrong people, which I think why it will be really violent this time around when the new paradigm establishes itself, but once it does, it will run over the old paradigm in no time at all. And I, I just, just, just don't, just don't try to save the old paradigm. It's a dragon to kill, to get to the virgin behind the dragon. It, it's not, it's not, it's not somebody to save to then have an affair with. It's, it, it really is a dragon, right? It really is a dragon now. Kill the old paradigm, take part in that, and then prepare to enjoy the virgin on the other side of the dragon. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. I want uh, one more question um, from Anis. You wanna you wanna ask your question here as the last one? Yes, sure. Um, so yeah, like um, Alexander, you um, said that the, each paradigm has a main idea, and our uh, the main idea today is the the network. So, what would be your advice for us as a network or a virtual tribe in order to thrive in this new paradigm? I'm part in the project. One of you guys might love the idea so much you will be ahead of me in no time at all, but I'm part of a project here where eight guys are meeting on a regular basis in Stockholm, and we plan to build a digital monastery. And that's going to start as a virtual digital monastery, actually in a few weeks' time. Then it's going to be a physical monastery in a few years' time, and we plan to live together. I think monasteries are back. And monasteries are shamanic entities that serve the tribal community. So we will then serve the community around us from the monastery where we live. The reason why we do this is that I, I actually think we're moving towards a new Middle Ages. Uh, technology will go global. It already is. It's called the Internet. The Internet Protocol is the new law of the universe, more or less. But that's for technology. Technology has its own law, and that's a global law. So technology goes global. But when, as technology goes global, we will increasingly be forced to go more local. And that means the only thing we can trust is the sociant. That's why we do sociontology. That's what the patterns we see with people, everything, every, every time people organize themselves in the digital realm, they organize themselves in the tribal structure because the nation and the empire are way too abstract forms for people to organize themselves today online. So what happens is that they organize themselves in a tribal manner. And I think that to be part of your local community where you live is key. And to them, part of a similar digital community is also key. And if, if, you, if you don't want to run off and have a wife and three kids in the next 10 years, then I should certainly pursue this, this, this idea of creating digital monasteries. It's coming out of a mixture between the Burning Man world and the men's world. And uh, a lot of guys feel this is the thing to do. I also happen to know some women who are thinking in very similar patterns for women. And why we don't make this mixed gender is because we, we have an experience, especially in Scandinavia, mixed gender collectives. We started them 40 years ago and they all fell apart because the, the, mm. the, the sexuality affects everything. The trick here is to move men together who are not actually having any sexual relationships and keep the sexuality outside of the realm and then keep the monastery inside of the realm and then be you know good monks and things like that and work on these things. But I think digital monastery is a, is a great idea that it's gonna, gonna happen. I think it's just naturally gonna happen. I think suddenly we discovered that there'll be networks, digital monasteries that just occurred at the same time because the idea is absolutely perfect for the 2020s. And um, yeah. I think that's where things are heading next. 
Humans are going local, technology is going global. That's a key phrase here. Our second book was called The Global Empire. And if you read it, you will discover that it's not a global empire for humans. It's a global empire of technology itself that humans then will be submitted to because we have to. Uh, so we, we are sitting here in the outer circle, we men, uh, planning what to do in the new party. Um, so I'm, I'm no, not afraid at all of the, what's going to happen. Okay, but the women, they are sitting in the inner circle on Instagram and just uh, having uh, pressions and so on. What will their, their role be in the future? Well, I, 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 wouldn't be, I wouldn't be impolite as a man to tell women what to do. Um, I, I, think, I think what's lacking in modern radical feminism is the voice of the older women. Uh, I think what's happened is precisely that feminism was the older women's voice. It was classical feminism. It was fantastic. Feminism achieved up until the 1990s. Read Camille Paglia and then read the classics of Simone de Beauvoir. My mother did. I, I love her for it. So that's fantastic because women had, had to get a certain role in society after 1945. Because basically we men had made a fool to ourselves and killed 70 million of our own kind, right? Uh, but what happened in the 1990s was the internet came along. And when women, and we men also were naive about it, radical feminism moved online. And it became these sort of bitter groups of girls who were left aside and revengeful. And they took control of the whole thing. The same thing actually happened to the LGBT movement. And they're aware of that now. They should never let the queer, the Q letter into their equation as well, because there's now an LGBT classic movement here, for example, in Scandinavia. And they're totally anti-woke. And they're very much fond of our ideas of being an androgynous caste, serving both men and women and not living in ghetto and things like that. So a lot of these ideas are spreading now, right? But I think radical feminism hasn't served women at all. And what most girls then did, knowing that a young girl knows everything, if a young girl knows everything, which is a ridiculous idea, she will then go online, start an Instagram account, and behaves as if she knows everything, and photograph her fucking nose 4,000 times a day. It's pathetic. But nobody's telling them that. So the other girls mimic that. So you end up with this whole completely idiotic circle of young girls who just mimic the same behavior, which is this weird behavior of, you must look great, you must look great, you must look better, you must go thinner, you must go thinner. And the eating disorders and the dysmorphia, the gender dysmorphia, all these things that girls go through right now is because there are no older women around to teach them what a woman should be like. So they're suffering from an immense rite of passage disorder. They don't do the rite of passage from girl to woman, they stay girls. And because they stay girls and the women are not, the older women are not around. And that's because the older women didn't go online. And when they did go online, they only talked to each other. So the first problem of generational isolation we see right now is not actually among men, it's among women. I think once you get around to this, it's all dialectical, it takes time. I think we'll have a lot of older women stepping into the picture with a very mature discussion of what it means to be a woman rather than being girl. Because just like men have, they desperately need to get out of the boy thing and get into the man thing. And women have to do the same, the same journey. And I think they have to do it. Yeah, what, what in the meantime, I think women will go a lot more socially conservative because when the experimentation on the side of young women fails, women go hunting for a guy who's wealthy and has got a dick and can fuck her and she can have children and she doesn't have to go to work. I think, that, I think, I think women will go much less radical and go much more socially conservative over the next 10 to 15 years, simply as a response to the idea that the other model wasn't working. But then after that, maybe they can also reach a new dialectical stage when, when it's some kind of more powerful, more mature woman can be in charge. And at the end of the day, we must create a society where women want to give birth to children. That's timeless. It has to end there.